Chapter Nineteen Moonfleet. This recording is in the public domain. Twas with thoughts like this that I was busy while the short afternoon was spent, and the story went up and down the village how that Elzevir Block and John Trenchard, who left so long ago, were come back to Moonfleet, and that the old lander was drowned, saving the young man's life. The dusk was creeping up as I turned back the sail from off his face, and took another look at my lost friend, my only friend, for who was there now to care a jot for me? I might go and drown myself on Moonfleet Beach for any one that would grieve over me. What did it profit me to have broken bonds and to be free again? What use was freedom to me now? Where was I to go? What was I to do? My friend was gone. So I went back and sat with my head in my hands, looking into the fire, when I heard someone step into the room, but did not turn, thinking it was Master Ratsey come back and treading lightly so as not to disturb me. Then I felt a light touch on my shoulder, and looking up saw standing by me a tall and stately woman, girl no longer, but woman in the full strength and beauty of youth. I knew her in a moment, for she had altered little, except her oval face had something more of dignity, and the tawny hair that used to fly about her back was now gathered up. She was looking down at me, and let her hand rest on my shoulder. "'John,' she said, "'have you forgotten me? May I not share your sorrow? Did you not think to tell me you were come? Did you not see the light? Did you not know there was a friend that waited for you?' I said nothing not being able to speak, but marvelling how she had come just in the point of time to prove me wrong to think I had no friend. And she went on, "'Is it well for you to be here? Grieve not too sadly, for none could have died nobler than he died. And in these years that you have been away I have thought much of him, and found him good at heart. And if he did aught wrong, twas because others wronged him more.' And while she spoke, I thought how Elzevir had gone to shoot her father, and only failed of it by a hair's breadth. And yet she spoke so well, I thought he never really meant to shoot at all, but only to scare the magistrate. And what a whirligig of time was here, that I should have saved Elzevir from having that blot on his conscience, and then that he should save my life, and now that Maskew's daughter should be the one to praise Elzevir when he lay dead. And still I could not speak. And again she said, "'John, have you no word for me? Have you forgotten? Do you not love me still? Have I no part in your sorrow?' Then I took her hand in mine, and raised it to my lips, and said, "'Dear Mistress Grace, I have forgotten nothing, and honour you above all others. But of love I may not speak more to you, nor you to me, for we are no more boy and girl as in times past, but you a noble lady, and I—' a broken wretch. And with that I told her how I had been ten years a prisoner, and why, and showed her the iron ring upon my wrist, and the brand upon my cheek. At the brand she stared, and said, "'Speak not of wealth. Tis not wealth makes men, and if you have come back no richer than you went, you are come back no poorer, nor poorer, John, in honour.' and I am rich, and have more wealth than I can rightly use. So speak not of these things, but be glad that you are poor, and were not let to profit by that evil treasure. 
but for this brand it is no prison name to me but the mohun's badge to show that you are theirs and must do their bidding said i not to you have a care how you touch the treasure it was evilly come by and will bring a curse with it but now i pray you with a greater earnestness seeing you bear this mark upon you touch no penny of that treasure if it should some day come back to you but put it to such uses as colonel munhoon thought would help his sinful soul with that she took her hand from mine and bade me good-night leaving me in the darkening room with the glow from the fire lighting up the sail and the outline of the body that lay under it after she was gone i pondered long over what she had said and what that should mean when she spoke of the treasure one day coming back to me but wondered much the most to find how constant is the love of woman and how she could still find a place in her heart for so poor a thing as i but as to what she said i was to learn her meaning this very night master ratsey had come in and gone again not stopping with me very long because there was much doing on the beach but bidding me be of good cheer and have no fear of the law for that the bane against me and the head price had been dead for many a year twas grace had made her lawyers move for this refusing herself to sign the hue and cry and saying that the fatal shot was fired by misadventure and so a dread which was just waking was laid to rest for ever and when ratsey went i made up the fire and lay down in the blankets in front of it for i was dog-tired and longed for sleep i was already dozing but not asleep when there was a knock at the door and in walked mr glenny he was aged and stooped a little as i could see by the firelight but for all that i knew him at once and sitting up offered him what welcome i could he looked at me curiously at first as taking note of the bearded man that had grown out of the boy he remembered but gave me very kindly greeting and sat down beside me on a bench first he lifted the sail from the dead body and looked at the sleeping face then he took out a common prayer reading the commendamus over the dead and giving me spiritual comfort and lastly he felt talking about the past from him i learnt something of what had happened while i was away though for that matter nothing had happened at all except a few deaths for that is the only sort of change for which we look in moonfleet and among those who had passed away was miss arnold my aunt so that i was another friend the less if indeed i should count her a friend for though she meant me well she showed her care with too much strictness to let me love her and so in my great sorrow for elzevir i found no room to grieve for her whether from the spiritual solace mr glennie offered me or whether from his pointing out how much cause for thankfulness i had in being loosed out of prison and saved from imminent death certain it was i felt some assuagement of grief and took pleasure in his talk and though i may by some be reprehended he said for presuming to refer to profane authors after citing holy scripture yet i cannot refrain from saying that even the great poet homer counsels moderation in mourning for quickly says he cometh satiety of chilly grief after this i thought he was going but he cleared his throat in such a way that i guessed he had something important to say and he drew a long folded blue paper from his pocket my son he said opening it leisurely and smoothing it out upon his knee we should never revile fortune and in speaking of fortune i only use that appellation in our poor human sense and do not imply that there is any chance at all but what is subject to an overruling providence we should never i say revile fortune 
for just at that moment when she appears to have deserted us, she may be only gone away to seek some richest treasure to bring back with her, and that this is so, let what I am about to read to you prove. So light a candle, and set it by me, for my eyes cannot follow the writing in this dancing firelight. I took an end of candle, which stood on the mantelpiece, and did as he bid me, and he went on. I shall read you this letter, which I received near eight years ago, and of the weightiness of it you shall yourself judge. I shall not here set down that letter in full, although I have it by me, but will put it shortly, because it was from a lawyer, tricked with long-winded phrases, and spun out as such letters are to afford cover afterwards for a heavier charge. It was addressed to the Reverend Horace Glenny, perpetual curate of Moonfleet, in the county of Dorset, England, and written in English by Heer Rudston, attorney in Signariet of the Hague in the Kingdom of Holland. It set forth that one Crispigen Aldobrand, jeweller and dealer in precious stones at the Hague, had sent for Heer Rudston to draw a will for him, and that the said Crispigen Aldobrand, being near his end, had disposed to the said Heer Rudston that he, Aldobrand, was desirous to leave all his goods to one John Trenchard of Moonfleet, Dorset, in the Kingdom of England and that he was moved to do this, first, by the consideration that he, Aldebrand, had no children to whom to leave aught, and second, because he desired to make full and fitting restitution to John Trenchard, for that he had once obtained from the said John a diamond without paying the proper price for it, which stone he, Aldebrand, had sold and converted into money, and having done so, found afterwards both his fortune and his health decline so that, although he had great riches before he became possessed of the diamond, these had forthwith melted through unfortunate ventures and speculations, till he had little remaining to him but the money that this same diamond had brought. He therefore left to John Trenchard everything of which he should die possessed, and being near death begged his forgiveness if he had wronged him in aught. These were the instructions which he Rudston received from Mr. Aldebrand, whose health sensibly declined, until three months later he died. It was well, he Rudston added, that the will had been drawn in good time, for as Mr. Aldebrand grew weaker, he became a prey to delusions, saying that John Trenchard had laid a curse upon the diamond, and professing even to relate the words of it, namely, that it should bring evil in this life, and damnation in that which is to come. Nor was this all, for he could get no sleep, but woke up with a horrid dream, in which, so he informed Hirutsten, he saw continually a tall man with a coppery face and black beard draw the bed-curtains and mock him. Thus he came at length to his end, and after his death Hirutsten endeavoured to give effect to the provision of the will by writing to John Trenchard at Moonfleet, Dorset, to apprise him that he was left sole heir. That address, indeed, was all the indication that Aldobrand had given, although he constantly promised his attorney to let him have closer information as to Trenchard's whereabouts in good time. This information was, however, always postponed, perhaps because Aldobrand hoped he might get better, and so repent of his repentance. So all he Rudston had to do was to write to Trenchard at Moonfleet, and in due course the letter was returned to him, with the information that Trenchard had fled that place to escape the law and was then nowhere to be found. After that Heer Rudston was advised to write to the minister of the parish, and so addressed these lines to Mr. Glenny. This was the gist of the letter which Mr. Glenny read, and you may easily guess how such news moved me, 
and how we sat far into the night, talking and considering what steps it was best to take, for we feared lest so long an interval as eight years having elapsed, the lawyers might have made some other disposition of the money. It was midnight when Mr. Glennie left. The candle had long burnt out, but the fire was bright, and he knelt a moment by the trestle table before he went out. "'He made a good end, John,' he said, rising from his knees. "'And I pray that our end may be in as good cause when it comes. For with the best of us the hour of death is an awful hour, and we may well pray, as every Sunday, to be delivered in it.' But there was another time which those who wrote this litany thought no less perilous, and bade us pray to be delivered in all time of our wealth. So I pray that if, after all, this wealth comes to your hand, you may be led to use it well. For though I do not hold with foolish tales, or think a curse hangs on riches themselves, yet if riches have been set apart for good purpose, even by evil men, as Colonel John Mohoon set apart this treasure, it cannot be but that we shall do grievous wrong in putting them to other use. So fare you well, and remember that there are other treasures besides this, and that a good woman's love is worth far more than all the gold and jewels of the world, as I once knew and with that he left me. I guessed that he had spoken with grace that day, and as I lay dozing in front of the fire, alone in this old room I knew so well, alone with that silent friend who had died to save me, I mourned him none the less, but yet sorrowed not as one without hope. What need to tell this tale at any more length, since you may know by my telling it that all went well, for what man would sit down to write a history that ended in his own discomfiture? All that great wealth came to my hands, and if I do not say how great it was, tis that I may not wake envy, for it was far more than ever I could have thought. And of that money I never touched penny piece, having learnt a bitter lesson in the past, but laid it out in good works, with Mr. Glennie and Grace to help me. First we rebuilt and enlarged the almshouses beyond all that Colonel John Mohoon could ever think of, and so established them as to be a haven for ever for all worn-out sailors of that coast. Next we sought the guidance of the Brethren of the Trinity, and built a lighthouse on the snout, to be a channel-beacon for sea-going ships, as Maskew's match had been a light for our fishing-boats in the past. Lastly we beautified the church, turning out the cumbrous seats of oak, and neatly pewing it with deal and bays that made it most commodious to sit in of the sabbath there was also much old glass which we removed and reglazed all the windows tight against the wind so that what with a high pulpit reading-desk and seat for master clerk and new commandment boards each side of the holy table there was not a church could vie with ours in the countryside but that great vault below it with its memories was set in order and then safely walled up and after that nothing was more ever heard of Blackbeard and his lost Mohoons. And as for the landers, I cannot say where they went, and if a cargo is still run of a dark night upon the beach, I know nothing of it, being both lord of the manor and justice of the peace. The village, too, renewed itself with the new almshouses and church. There were old houses rebuilt, and fresh ones reared, and all are ours, except the Why Not, which still remains the duchy inn. And that was that again, and men left the cuffs at Ringstave, and came back to their old haunt, and any shipwrecked or travel-worn sailor found board and welcome within its doors. And of the Moonhoon Hospital, for that was what the almshouses were now called, Master Glennie was first warden, with fair rooms and a full library, and Master Ratsey, head of the beadsmen. 
There they spent happier days, till they were gathered in the fullness of their years, and sleep on the sunny side of the church, within sound of the sea, by that great buttress where I once found Master Ratsey listening with his ear to ground, and close beside them lies Elzevir Block, most faithful and most loved by me, with a text on his tombstone, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend, and some of Mr. Glenny's verses. And of ourselves, let me speak last, the manor-house is a stately home again, with trim lawns and terraced balustrades, where we can sit and see the thin blue smoke hang above the village on summer evenings, and in the manor-woods my wife and I have seen a little Grace and a little John and little Elzevir, our first-born, play, and now our daughter is grown up, fair to us as the polished corners of the temple, and our sons are gone out to serve King George on sea and land. But as for us, for Grace and me, we never leave this our happy moonfleet, being well content to see the dawn tipping the long cliff line with gold, and the night walking in dew across the meadows, to watch the spring clothe the beech boughs with green, or the figs ripen on the southern wall, while behind all is spread as a curtain the eternal sea, ever the same and ever changing. Yet I love to see it best when it is lashed to madness in the autumn gale, and to hear the grinding roar and churn of the pebbles like a great organ playing all the night. Tis then I turn in bed, and thank God, more from the heart, perhaps, than any other living man, that I am not fighting for my life on Moonfleet Beach. And more than once I have stood, rope in hand, in that same awful place, and tried to save a struggling wretch, but never saw one come through the surf alive in such a night as he saved me. End of chapter 19 End of Moonfleet by J. Mead Falconer Recording by Jennifer Lott